I'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you that uh, this coming weekend, we'll have the privilege of having Chris and Kirsten DeLagula back with us uh, for the weekend. They're going to be driving one of their cars out uh, the end of this next week and then looking for some housing here. And then Chris is going to be leading worship for the first time uh, here this coming Sunday. And uh, so just wanted to uh, ask you to be praying for them as they, they make that uh, long trip, 24 hours uh, from L.A. to uh, Houston, and um, that God would be gracious in providing them a, a place to live, uh, probably going to just rent for the first uh, few months that they're here until they get acclimated to the area and find out where they actually want to uh, settle down. And so um, be praying for that as well. And also, I wanted to let you know that we're going to be having a special equipping hour uh, next Sunday uh, over in the worship center, and uh, we already have uh, all the adult classes meeting together, so it seemed like a natural uh, time to do this, um, but I would like to uh, just spend some time interviewing Chris in front of you and uh, giving you a chance to get to know him, th- those of you that really haven't had a chance to interact at all with him yet, uh, and so uh, if you don't normally come to equipping hour, I would strongly encourage you to come next Sunday, 9 o'clock. Uh, and join us in the worship center, and, and we'll just have a Q&A time with Chris and, and uh, get to know him and uh, hear his heart, and uh, also be looking for an email this week. We want to send you um, some, uh, some documents um, that uh, we were able to read, uh, uh, his application, uh, um, and also maybe some links to some of his, uh, the music that he's produced already online. Uh, you get a feel for him and uh, just kind of hear him sing and play and things like that. Uh, I think that would be uh, an encouragement to you. Uh, and so be watching uh, on that. We may, if, if you don't uh, do email or for what, whatever reason, we may have some hard copies of that, of those things uh, next Sunday as well, if you'd like to take those and, and read up on, on Chris. But I'd encourage you to read through those uh, documents and, and again, in preparation for this Sunday, and you might have some questions of your own that you're curious about, you want to ask him, and we'll have probably some time for that as well next Sunday. So be praying about that, and we look forward to having you all back here uh, during Equipment Hour uh, next next Sunday. Well, let's read uh, this morning's text. Um, Last Sunday, we launched into the final section of John's Gospel, in which he recorded the Passion of Christ, and we, we said the passion, that term refers to Christ's arrest, his trial, uh, his, his crucifixion. All of that is included in, his, in the passion of Christ. And so we're going to continue uh, looking at uh, what happened after Jesus was arrested, starting in verse 12, John 18, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Father, this is a sad uh, account of Peter's denial and even of this sham trial that uh, the Jews tried to pass off as a legitimate uh, trial to convict Jesus of a, of a legitimate crime. And, and so, Lord, we ask now for insight by your Spirit as we consider this trial and this denial uh, section of the Gospel of John, that you would give us wisdom and discernment into what this text means and how it applies to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus' religious trial before the Jewish authorities, represented by Annas, and next week we're going to look at Jesus' civil trial before the Roman authorities, who was represented by Pilate. Now, Jesus actually was subjected to six trials total, uh, three in front of the Jews and three in front of the Romans. Uh, when it came to the Jews, he stood before Annas, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. He, secondly, he stood before Caiaphas and the entire Sanhedrin, and then again, that same group when they made the final decision to hand him over to Pilate. When he got handed over to the Romans, he met first of all with Pilate, and then he was sent to Herod, and then he was sent back to Pilate. And so, since the Jews were under Roman rule, they had to work through the Roman legal system, particularly to secure the death penalty for Jesus. And so, if you get the sense, as we read through this section, that the Jews were rushing Jesus through the legal process, you've got it right. That's exactly what they were doing. They were on a very tight time frame, because the Passover... The Sabbath was about to begin that following night. This was, a, again, Thursday when Jesus was arrested, and then the following night was Friday. Uh, in order to have Jesus crucified, they had to have him tried and formally condemned by the Sanhedrin early Friday morning, and then get Pilate's confirmation by mid to late morning so Jesus could be on the cross by midday and then dead and then off the cross before sundown when Sabbath started. So they were doing whatever they could to move this process forward quickly. Now John recorded just the first phase of Jesus' trial before Annas. In fact, he's the only gospel writer who mentions Annas' role in the trial of Jesus. All the others go directly to that second phase with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. What is also unique about John's account here is that throughout this 
preliminary trial, he interspersed Peter's three denials. And he just kind of weaves them together. And so John's narrative here is like a play production that, that switches back and forth between two stages or two scenes. It's kind of like you were maybe trying to watch two, uh, two, two games at the same time, guys, right? You're like, Psh, and you keep switching the channel. And you're here over here, and you're in Dallas, and then you're over here, and the game's in Miami, and you're watching them both, right? Uh, or, or you're watching maybe a play uh, done in two scenes or two acts or two stages, and on one stage, uh, in one scene, the setting is outside, or excuse me, is inside the home of the high priest uh, where Jesus is being questioned by Annas. That's the first scene. That's the first stage inside the house of Annas, and he's being questioned by Annas himself. And then you switch off to the other stage or the other scene, and the setting is outside in the courtyard where Peter's being questioned by Annas's uh, subordinates. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wove together these two simultaneous scenes into one dramatic storyline. And so these, these two interrogations that were going on, the interrogation of Jesus by Annas and the interrogation of, of Peter by his associates or subordinates were happening at the same time. And so again, John is kind of switching back and forth between these two accounts. John MacArthur makes a great uh, point here uh, in, by way of um, theological application of what we can draw from just the way that, that uh, P, uh, John sets this up for us in his gospel. He said this, quote, the interplay of the two dramas brings into sharp focus opposite truths that are foundational to all of Christian doctrine, the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. Those truths are evident from the contrast between Christ's faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness, Christ's courage and Peter's cowardice, Christ's sacrificial love and Peter's self-preserving lies. And so in this passage, what we're going to see is John giving us a a dramatic play-by-play, side-by-side narration of Jesus' trial and Peter's denial, and he weaves together these two interrogations, which again were were carried out simultaneously by Annas and his subordinates. And again, we're going to see the contrast here between the majesty of Christ and the depravity of man. And so let's break this um, passage up into those two sections uh, Jesus' trial, we'll simply call this, Jesus is debriefed by Annas, that's verses 13 and 14 and verses 19 to 24, we're going to look at that all together, and then we'll go to the second part, portion of the second scene, um, where Jesus diso- was disavowed by Peter, in verses 15 to 18 and verses 25 to 27. So let's look first of all at how Jesus was debriefed by Annas, verse 13, and the Roman cohort and the temple guards led Jesus to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And remember last week, Jesus uh, did not resist arrest. He willingly surrendered himself, which was shocking to them because they had come loaded for bear, ready for a fight and any miracle that he might try to perform, and yet he simply surrendered himself and, and so they bound him, and they led him off to the high priest's residence. It says that Annas um, was the one they took him to first, 
And he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, Annas used to be the high priest. Uh, He had been appointed high priest by Quirinius, the governor of Syria, in AD 6. And he'd served until AD 15, when he was deposed by the Roman procurator um, of Judea, Valerius Gratus, who was the predecessor of Pilate. And so Annas was succeeded by five of his own sons uh, and his son-in-law. And and Caiaphas was his son-in-law who held the office of high priest from AD 18 to AD 36 during most of the time when Jesus lived and ministered. And so the question is, why did he lead him to Annas? If if Caiaphas is the high priest, then why did he lead lead him to Annas first? Well, although Caiaphas officially held the office of high priest, Annas was the elder statesman. He was the expert in religious matters who still held the real power over the Jewish establishment. He was, maybe you could liken him to the high priest emeritus. Or how about the godfather? That's more of what Annas probably was imagined as, the godfather. And, And according to Jewish law, the office of high priest was held for life. However, the Romans didn't like the concentration of power in one person, so they frequently switched out uh, who served as the high priest. And so, nevertheless, Annas continued to wield his influence in the realm of Jerusalem politics. And he was a very proud, ambitious, greedy, self-serving man. In fact, he was notorious, maybe most notorious, for making a killing off selling sacrificial animals and exchanging money uh, for the Jews, whenever they came to worship at the temple, remember those those uh, the, the the money changers in the temple. Uh, that was referred to historically as the bazaar of Annas. It was Annas's bazaar. It was his. He was behind it all, and it was Annas's bazaar or business, if you will, that Jesus disrupted and confronted not just once but twice in his ministry, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. We learned about it back in John chapter 2 and also Matthew 21 records the second time where Jesus came in and made a whip and turned over all the tables of the money changers and he, and he drove all the animals out of the temple and he said, why have you made my father's house a, a, a den of thieves when it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And, and ultimately, he was confronting the, the leader of the Jewish religious system, the, the high priest emeritus, the godfather who ran all of this stuff, who was behind all this stuff. And so you can imagine that Annas didn't care much for Jesus at all. Verse 14, now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So John took this opportunity in bringing up Caiaphas' name to remind his readers of the inadvertent prophecy of the substitutionary atonement of Christ that Caiaphas had made earlier uh, in a meeting of the Sanhedrin when they were conspiring to kill him. Let's go back there uh, and look at this in John chapter 11, verse 47. John chapter 11, verse 47 Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were like frantically saying, we've got to do something. Jesus is becoming way too popular. And if we don't do something, uh, this is going to be a problem. And the Romans are going to step in and take away not only our nation, but take away our place, our position and our authority. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, you idiots, <laughs> nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation, and that the whole nation not perish. In other words, the best thing to do is kill this guy. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And the inference there is not just for the Jews. He wouldn't just die as a substitute atonement for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So obviously, with that background of Annas, uh, Annas was a politician. He, he was no spiritual leader, and no real justice could be expected to come from this guy. Um, he, along with the rest of the Jewish religious leaders, had already decided to kill Jesus. Now they were simply trying to justify his murder with some semblance of a trial, which was a total sham. Let's jump ahead now, back in John 18 to verse 19. And, and again, John um, just continues the account as if we're just switching channels and skipping over verses 15 and 18. But look at, look at how he just picks right, right up where he left off in verse 14. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So Annas conducted really his own preliminary investigation in an effort to evaluate the case and formulate some sort of charge that might hold up in a Roman court. And so what Annas did here could be likened to when an arrested person is brought to the police station, right, and they're questioned initially about the situation before they are formally questioned and then charged. And so Annas asked Jesus some, some specific questions about two things. Number one, his disciples, possibly, hey, who are your disciples? How many disciples do you have? And then secondly, he asked him some questions about what he taught. And I think Annas was, was hoping to uncover some crime. Maybe uh, he had enough followers to, to, to qualify as a rebellion, as, as some kind of subversion, and say, hey, look, this guy's, uh, he's a revolutionary, and he's going to overthrow the Roman government, or he's trying to, and, and so you should, uh, you should kill him. Or maybe he had some revolutionary elements in his teaching. He was, he was stirring the crowds up, the, the masses up to, to overthrow Rome, and they, so he's looking for those kinds of things. And so rather than bringing formal charges against Jesus and producing evidence to substantiate them, Annas was trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself, which, by the way, is what? Illegal. It's illegal in our justice system. It was illegal in the Jewish justice system. The Jewish law prohibited self-incrimination. They, the accused couldn't be required to testify against themselves. Does that sound familiar? Don't we have an amendment in our Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, right? You plead the Fifth, right? I, hey, you can't, I don't have to answer that question. And that's the whole idea of not, not having to be required to testify against yourself. Notice how Jesus responded here in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? 
Question those who've heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So in essence, I think what Jesus was, was doing here, he was appealing to Annas for a fair trial and to follow appealing to him to follow due process, which required at least two witnesses to convict anyone of a crime. That was the Jewish law. You had to, you had to have at least two witnesses. And so he says, listen, it's, it's no secret what I believe and, and what I teach. I've been teaching in all sorts of public venues. There's, there's plenty of people who've heard me. Why don't, why don't you just ask one of them what I said? In other words, if, if you've got a case against me, Annas, then prove it by getting some witnesses in here to testify against me. Well, as you know, they did eventually get some false witnesses, right? Two knuckleheads that they got to come and say what they wanted him, them to say. Even though their testimonies were inconsistent, they still convicted Jesus of blasphemy. Notice verse 22 When Jesus had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? This was likely one of the temple guards, not necessarily a Roman soldier, but one of the temple guards who was there with Annas, uh, you know, uh, standing there with them watching this thing go down. And he he considered Jesus' response to the high priest as disrespectful. So he either slapped him or he punched him in the face which, by the way, was also illegal since no sentence had been passed and a prisoner was not allowed to be punished until proven guilty. This was a, an act of, a legitimate act of police brutality here um, against Jesus. In verse 23, notice how Jesus just remained perfectly poised and responded with impeccable logic. Verse 23, Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong... In other words, tell me what I just said wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? And so he challenged the injustice of them not being able to accuse him of speaking evil while at the same time being able to assault him or abuse him for speaking the truth. So he's, he's exposing their hypocrisy is what he's doing here. Someone wrote this, It was easier to evade the truth or to silence the one who spoke the truth than to attempt to answer the truth. Truth has a self-evident power of persuasion, and those who oppose it find it difficult to deny. And so these guys didn't know what else to do but to punch him. (laughs) He just said the truth. Uh, Isn't that what the world does, right? They, uh, They don't know how to respond, so they just get violent. They get physical. Verse 24, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas realized he wasn't getting anywhere with with his interrogation of Jesus, so he sent him off to Caiaphas. And besides, Annas knew that if Jesus was going to be convicted of a capital offense and crucified by the Romans, it it would require a formal ruling from Caiaphas, who was the official high priest recognized by the Roman authorities. And so he sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Annas and Caiaphas probably lived in the same house, so it wouldn't have taken long for Jesus to be transferred from one to the other. It was customary in the Middle East, it still is today, for families to build these large homes around a a central courtyard. 
And so he was probably just having to walk across from Annas' residence, across the courtyard to Caiaphas' residence. Now, again, John says nothing about Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and the hastily assembled Sanhedrin. You, must, uh, you can only imagine, right, this, this was going down at night and all of a sudden the word went out. They, they, all the, the, the Sanhedrin were maybe in bed and they, all of a sudden they, got, they all got texts. Hey, we got an emergency meeting. Get over here quick, right? And they all had to rush over uh, to have this meeting. This was, the, this was the Jewish Supreme Court. And they had to have this hastily assembled meeting to determine what to do with Jesus. I thought it would be helpful, uh, while John doesn't record this, to uh, read at least one record of this. And again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record uh, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. But let's look at Matthew's account, just quickly. I just want to read this for you, just to get the context here, the flow of, of thought here. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. And again, notice all the other gospel writers, including Matthew, just skip right over this little incident with Annas. They go straight to Caiaphas. Verse 57, this is Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, and as, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, he and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find it, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. (laughs) I like that. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat on his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? And then notice what comes immediately after that is Peter's denials. Well, again, according to Jewish law that stated the high priest was to serve for life, Annas was still the high priest in God's eyes. And he represented the nation of Israel before God. That was the role of the high priest. And I think that Annas also represented Judaism as a whole who when standing in the presence of the Messiah, whom God had promised to send to them, instead of acknowledging him and and bowing down before him in humble adoration and submission, Annas, along with the rest of the nation of Israel, refused to acknowledge him as their Messiah and totally rejected him and requested that the Romans kill him for them. We don't want him to be our king. And one commentator insightfully said this, this was the man who was the accredited guardian of the nation's soul. 
He had been set apart to be the supreme interpreter and representative of the Most High. To him was committed the glorious privilege of entering once every year into the Holy of Holies. Yet this was the man who condemned the Son of God. History provides no more startling illustration of the truth that the best religious opportunities in the world and the most promising environment will not guarantee a man's salvation. I mean, you couldn't get any closer to God than being the high priest of Israel. And yet he was unsaved. He was an unbeliever. And this commentator ends his quote here by quoting from John Bunyan in that classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, where he said this, Then I saw that there's a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. There's a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. In other words, you could, you, you could go to church your entire life and still go to hell. There's a way to hell from the pew of a church. How's that? That's the idea. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are, how religious you are, no matter how many spiritual things you do, religious things, practices that you go through and rituals that you do, right? I mean, the high priest, he was, he was doing it all. And if there was anybody you think would, would, would go to heaven, it was the high priest of Israel. But he didn't. And neither will you if it's all a sham, if it's all going through the motions and there's not a genuine uh, acknowledgement and adoration and, and, and acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your Lord and Savior. Your personal Lord and Savior. Those painful slaps in the face of Jesus by the Jewish officers, I think, typified the, the response of the Jewish people to Jesus. He came and presented him, himself to them as their Messiah and they just all slapped him and they just all spit on him and they beat him up. But I don't think that was the most hurtful thing that Jesus experienced that night at the high priest's house. I think what hurt much worse was when Peter, the avowed leader of his disciples, disavowed him. Not just once, but three times. And each time that Peter denied Christ, it was as if he slapped him in the face. And so now let's look at how Jesus was disavowed by Peter. And we switch scenes, we go to the other stage, the spotlight turns off on this stage of inside the house and Annas questioning Jesus and now the spotlight turns onto this stage and to this scene and to this set and it's outside in the courtyard, and we're going to see what happens uh, when Jesus denies Christ. Now, the fact that all four Gospels record the denial of the bold leader of Jesus' disciples is, is an indication of how significant this event was. I mean, Peter's like, hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate that. I mean, if there's anything you could have left out of your Gospels, there's a lot of other things you left out, but you had to include that. Thanks, guys. But this is, just shows how significant this event was in the minds of the other disciples. Verse 15, 
Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Well, if you remember from last week that the moment Jesus was arrested, all the disciples were like, boom, they're out of there. Man, they took off. One even had to run off naked. They fled in fear for their lives. And yet we know that Peter and another disciple, after running off initially, turned back and followed Jesus from a distance and uh, followed him and his captors back across the Kidron Valley and up that hill into the city to see what would happen to their beloved Lord. And so we have Peter here, it says, and another disciple. You say, well, who was that? Well, some suggest that this was Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea because they had some connection with the high priest. And what would, some, uh, what, what would any of the other disciples have any connection with, with, with the high priest? But I think the obvious choice is who? John, uh, who based on what he wrote here was clearly an eyewitness of Peter's denial. And we know that John, this is, this is just like John, that he never mentioned himself by name anywhere in the gospel. He, he simply referred to himself as the disciple whom what? Jesus loved. And, and we see that in, in chapter 13, verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved we see it in the next chapter, chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Chapter 20, verse 2, so she ran, this is Mary running, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. And then several times in chapter 21, he refers to himself is that as well. Verse um, 7, therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Chapter 21, verse 20, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. So John finally connects the dots and says, oh, by the way, I'm the guy that Jesus loved. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I'm the guy who's writing this thing. The only other time that John used this term, the other disciple, was in chapter 20, verse 2, which I just read, uh, which is a clear reference to John and Peter who ran to the tomb. So again, I think this is clearly, this is, this is John and Peter. And uh, John apparently was acquainted with the high priest and was able to gain access for himself and, and Peter into the courtyard. And while we don't know exactly what the basis of that relationship was with the high priest. It's not explained. It may have been that their families had, had business connections. Maybe they had, you know, everybody eat, ate fish, right? And uh, maybe he had a, had a, had a, a, a store there, or a, a, a part of the, the fishing industry. He had a, a location. He would catch them in Galilee and ship them down to Jerusalem, and, and they would deliver fish to the high priest. Um, that could have been it. Or there could have been marital ties. If you kind of follow the the, the, the relationships in the, in the New Testament and the Gospels, you see that John's mother was Salome, who was sisters with Jesus' mother Mary, who was related to Elizabeth, who was married to a priest, 
named Zechariah. Remember that? So there could have been that connection there. And so here we have John gaining access for he and Peter into the courtyard of the high priest's home. Notice verse 17, then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And so as this young slave girl who was likely holding the door open for those who would come and go, and and here comes Peter through the door and she asks him, hey, uh, surely you're not one of the disciples as well, one of these disciples, and, and, and she was fully expecting him to say no. I mean, this is in the negative here, the way she asked him. And so he just kind of went along with it. He goes, yeah, no, I'm not. And so he denied that he was a follower of Christ. Which is so ironic because moments before that, Peter was ready to take on the entire cohort of, of Roman soldiers single-handedly Grab the sword and attack was his mindset. Ask questions later. But now he's intimidated by one slave girl. Jump ahead to verse, well, just look at verse 18. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. If you know anything about the geography of of Jerusalem. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so it gets cold at night in the springtime. And so Peter naturally inched closer to the fire to warm himself and probably hoping just to blend into the crowd and kind of stay in the shadows there where people might not recognize him. But someone else asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples. And what did he say? No, I'm not. Verse 25, jump ahead. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And things even grew more intense as the crowd around that fire got even more curious. Someone else thought they recognized Peter as being with Jesus earlier in the garden. Verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now it's getting really serious. Because somebody's like, hey, wait a minute. I know you. You were in the garden. You're, you, wait a minute. You're the one that cut off my relative's ear. So here was a relative of Malchus, this guy we met last week, who happened to get in the way of, of Peter's sword, uh, Peter went, went to attack and to, to kill him, and he missed, and he cut off his ear. And so he says, ah, I recognize you. And for the third time, Peter denied that he knew Jesus. And even as the words were coming out of his mouth, the Scripture says a rooster crowed. I mean, when he was saying that, that third, denying Christ that third time, as the words were coming out of his mouth, a rooster crowed in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Go back to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Seriously, Peter, really? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So verse 27, back in John 18, Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. What a sad, striking contradiction to Peter's previous confident claim that he was willing to die for Jesus, right? And what a great illustration of Christ's sovereign control over every situation and over every living creature. I don't know if you ever thought about God's sovereignty over roosters. We know he was sovereign over fish. We haven't seen it yet in the Gospel of John, but we will in the last chapter, in verse chapter 21, when they had fished all night and they hadn't caught a thing, and Jesus shows up on the shore and says, hey, cast it out on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. And so they did, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And immediately Simon looked up and said, that's Jesus right? John said, hey, that's Jesus. And Peter jumped in the water and swam ashore. Why? Because that was only, only, only Jesus could do that. There, there were no fish all night, and all of a sudden, they were there. So many, they couldn't even haul them in. Now, we know that at this point, according to the other gospel writers, that Peter went out, it says, and wept bitterly. And I think it was more than just the, the crow of the rooster that prompted him to, to leave the courtyard and, and caused him to, to weep bitterly. Something else happened at that same moment that I think was the, the thing that really, really affected him the most. Turn over to Luke 22. And let's see what Luke says in his account of this situation. Luke chapter 22, verse 60. And what Luke points out that as these people questioned Peter, at first he said, no, I'm not, I'm not, one of the, I'm not a disciple. No, I don't know him. The more he was asked, the more adamant he became, the more insistent that the people in that courtyard were that he was a disciple, he became even more insistent that he wasn't, even to the point that at the end, he finally swore, not, he didn't cuss, he, he said, Lord, basically, if I'm, if I'm lying, may God kill me. And so in verse 60 here, this is Luke 22, verse 60, Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. That was how he responded. I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And then notice verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I think it was this sad but loving look of the Lord that 
pushed Peter over the edge. And we don't know where Jesus was exactly at that moment when he made eye contact with, with, with Peter. He could have looked at him from one of the open rooms where he was, as he, or, or maybe as he was being led through the courtyard from Annas' uh, quarters to Caiaphas' quarters. But regardless of where it happened, in that incredibly intense moment when their eyes met, the crushing weight of Peter's sinfulness and unfaithfulness fell down upon him with all of its force. And, and again, this was not an I told you so look. It wasn't like a I told you so. It was a look of a friend who understood what he was going through, what Peter was going through. Because why? Jesus had been through the same thing during those 40 days in the wilderness where he was tested by Satan. He was sifted. Isn't that what Jesus said? That Satan has has desires to sift you, to test you, Peter. But I'm praying for you. He, He knew what it was like to be sifted or tested by Satan. And so his look was not a condemning look. He wasn't looking down on Peter, but he was reminding him that he was praying for him. Hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that his faith wouldn't fail. And so Jesus was expressing love and compassion and forgiveness, and it had a shattering effect on Peter. And it says he wept bitterly. Why? Because he had failed his Lord miserably, But by the grace of God, his failure wasn't final. His failure wasn't final. I think it's very interesting to compare Peter's denial with with Judas's betrayal. Just quickly turn to Matthew for a second. Matthew chapter 26, and and, and Matthew is the only one who puts these back to back. Matthew chapter 26, verse 75 it says, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. This is when he had denied him that third time and the, immediately a rooster crowed, verse 75. Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. That's Peter. Verse tw- chapter 27, verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he left, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See that to yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. So the main difference between Peter and Judas was how they responded. Wouldn't you agree that both of them blew it big time that night? I mean, they, you, you couldn't blow it any bigger than those two guys. Betraying Christ and denying Christ. And, and I don't know what, which is worse, right? I mean, I don't know that there's one's worse than the other. The, the, the main difference here is how they responded. Judas was so sad about betraying Christ that he committed suicide. That's how sad he was. Whereas Peter was so sad about denying Christ that he confessed his sin and repented of it. That's how sad he was. And I can't think of any better illustration in the scriptures of the difference between what's called worldly sorrow 
and godly sorrow and what they ultimately lead a person to do, then the story of Judas and Peter. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. As you know, Paul had to write some pretty rough stuff to the church in Corinth. They had lots of issues that they had to deal with. And so he, he wrote some pretty blunt letters and confronted them about some stuff. And, and those letters made him really sad. But they had to be confronted about their sin. And, and he says, you know what? I'm, I'm glad you were sad. And I'm glad that your sorrow was not just worldly sorrow where you just kind of feel bad. You just kind of feel bad about your sin, but you're not willing to do anything about it. I'm glad your, your sorrow was godly sorrow that actually led you to repent, to change. And listen, don't ever be fooled by, by those who may seem very sorry for their sin and they even maybe shed tears and that may be you at times. You feel really bad and you, even to the point where you're crying and, and over your sin and there's this sense of remorse and regret and you do feel really bad. But you never change. You never repent. You never turn away from those sins. That's worldly sorrow. That kind of sorrow leads to death and hell. Because that's evidence that the Spirit of God is not in you. And that's why you can't change. But true godly sorrow leads to repentance. See, what Judas failed to understand is that no matter what we've done, no matter how terrible that we think our sin is, God desires to forgive us. He desires to, 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 to restore us if we're willing to repent. That's God's heart. He's the God of a second chance. And by God's grace, Peter experienced God's forgiveness and restoration. Turn over quickly to John 21, and we're going to get here here in probably a few months or so, however long it takes us to get to chapter 21. But John 21, verse 15 this was after Jesus rose from the dead and he met his disciples up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and they were fishing and Peter had jumped out to come to shore. He made him breakfast. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him, the Third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then tend my sheep. At one fire, a week previous, Peter denied Christ three times. At this fire, Jesus restored Peter three times. He gave him a chance to reaffirm his love for his Lord as many times as he had denied his Lord. What a beautiful picture of restoration. And so God used this situation by that first fire 
to, to bring Peter to the end of himself. He, he was no longer proud and self-confident. You don't see that here in, in John 21. It's not like, hey, uh, hey, hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, gee, you know I love you. Man, I love you more than anybody. I'd rather die for you. You don't see that, do you? It was more like, Jesus, you know I love you. And he pressed him. Do you really love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, do you really love? Jesus, you know it's in my heart. Before, he was, he was quick to blurt out what was in his heart. You need to know. I want you to know. I want everybody to know what's in my He says, Jesus, he was content to, 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 to really depend on the Lord and his knowledge of him. See, P- Peter realized that night around that fire in the courtyard how weak that he really was. He wasn't as, as big and bad as he thought he was. And he realized how desperately he needed Christ to to live in dependence on Christ. And so through that experience, Peter learned to rely completely on Christ and to never trust in his own wisdom or strength. And so rather than boldly declaring his love for Christ, he just humbly deferred to what Jesus already knew. You, You know my heart. And so God used this entire process to humble and to break Peter in order to perfect him so so God could use him to encourage and strengthen others. Remember when he prayed, Peter said, listen, you're going to be sifted, you're going to be tested by Satan, but I'm praying for you uh, that your faith will not falter or fail. And he said, once you've turned back, in other words, once you've repented, he said, strengthen your brothers. There was a method to the madness here that Peter had to go through this humbling situation to prepare him to be the leader, the real leader, the spiritual leader of the disciples. And it was many years later when Peter wrote a letter to some persecuted Christians who were scattered all over Asia, and it must have been as he reflected on the events of that awful night when he betrayed his Lord those three times and and maybe even that wonderful morning when Christ restored him those three times that he penned these words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. This is Peter writing these words. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the heart of a man who had been broken through that process of denying the Lord three times. Listen, all of us have experienced that that shame, that sorrow of being unfaithful or disloyal to the Lord. I've done it. At the same time, however, we've also experienced the joy and the relief of confessing that sin and repenting of it and being forgiven and restored by Christ. Have we not? Let me close with these words from one commentator, 
pulling this all together. He says, every Christian at times comes before the Lord overwhelmed and broken by the awareness of his sinfulness. A person who never has such an experience either is very cold spiritually or is not a Christian at all. In other words, this is what it means to be a Christian. There are times when we weep bitterly over our sin. Nothing is more shattering to a believer than suddenly realizing he's denied the Lord by what he said or not said, done or not done. And yet nothing is more exhilarating to him than knowing God's gracious forgiveness of the unfaithfulness after it's confessed. And then he said this, in all the history of redemption, few saints have fallen to the depths of sin and unfaithfulness that Peter did in denying Jesus, yet few saints have been so powerfully used by God as Peter was after he repented and was restored. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious, forgiving God, and we truly see Christ's majesty in this passage, and we see right next to it man's depravity, and we're so thankful that Christ's majesty is greater than our depravity. And that he's able to forgive and to restore and to even perfect and, and uh, transform our trials, our temptations, even our sin into good. That he works all things for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we know Peter loved you. Even though he blew it big time, he messed up big time. He, he loved you. He wouldn't have been there in the courtyard to begin with if he didn't love you. He wouldn't even have seen Christ look at him if he wasn't looking at Christ to see what was happening to him. This one he loved and who he failed miserably. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who, is, who feels like they've just messed up big time and failed you miserably, Lord, that they would find the hope and the, the consolation in your forgiveness and your restoration if they're willing to truly repent, that this sorrow that they're feeling in their heart is not just worldly sorrow. They just they feel bad they got caught or they feel bad that they've got consequences to deal with now. And No, they f- really feel bad enough to repent, to change, to go in a different direction, to get help. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them today through your forgiveness and your restoration. And Lord, that you would use this trial, this time of suffering in their life to better equip them to serve others and to strengthen others and to equip others. Even as David, after all that he went through, he wanted to teach sinners your ways. And I pray that that would be the case for all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.